We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement yet remind folks to never forget to laugh every tuesday listen to conversation with unk hosted by lil duval on the black effect podcast network iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast presented by at&t connecting changes everything Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, Jorge, what did you want for your birthday when you were nine? I'm pretty sure I wanted Legos because I think throughout most of my childhood, that's all I wanted. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, probably Legos. That or having my own bedroom. <laughs> Did you want Legos so you could build your own room? <laughs> I wanted my own room so I didn't have to share my Legos. Oh. So are you saying that nine-year-old Jorge didn't want answers to some big science questions? I think Jorge in the third grade didn't know what science was. So probably my biggest science question would be, what is science? (laughs) So you weren't wondering about aliens and black holes? I did probably have a question about the universe back then. What was that? What's the biggest thing you can build out of Legos? (laughs) All right, I'm going online after this to buy you a bunch of Legos. (laughs) Done, I'll take it. (laughs) It's on the record. You know my address. Do they make a entire universe set for Legos? I'm thinking of adding to our house, so I think we'll, we'll just make it out of Legos that you send me. <laughs> Save on construction materials. Jorge, i cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and I'm not great at building real things out of Legos. Really? You never played with them as a kid? No, I play with Legos all the time, but I always end up making weird abstract stuff rather than like ships or dinosaurs or, you know, cartoon characters. 
Mm. I would have thought as a future particle physicist, all you would do is build stuff and then smash it together. <laughs> is there another reason to make Legos other than knocking them down? <laughs> that is the joyful part. <laughs> now the joy is putting them together, right? The, seeing how everything fits together. That's part of the wonder. Well, there is a wonderful connection between Legos and particle physics because it turns out that our universe follows the Lego principle. It's made of tiny little interlocking pieces and everything that's unique about you is how those pieces are put together, not the pieces themselves. Mm. Are quarks also painful when you step on them by accident? Absolutely. Since Legos are made out of quarks, it's really the quarks that you're stepping on at three in the morning. But welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we knock down everything about the universe and break it up into tiny little Lego-sized pieces so that we can explain it to you. We tackle black holes and neutron stars and galaxies and the tiniest of little particles. We tear all of it apart and show you what it's made out of, the pieces that we understand, and the pieces that we are still puzzling over. Yeah, because it is a pretty wonderful universe, very complex, very interesting, very fascinating to see how it all sort of fits together because it does seem like sometimes uh, somebody put it together using some kind of uh, instruction manual. It does sometimes and it makes me wonder if we ever do figure out what the smallest thing is, what that will sort of mean, you know, what we will learn from that philosophically, how we will interpret that. If the universe is made out of strings or tiny little foaming bits of space or something else entirely, eventually we'll be faced with the question, hmm, what does that mean about the universe? Yeah, because there might be a tiny little particle at the end of everything that everything is made out of. And Daniel, I think if you ever discover it, I think you should call it with some sort of acronym that spells out Lego, because that would be just so <laughs> wonderfully ironic. Maybe like light, energetic, gluon. Observable. Oreo? <laughs> Oreo? You can't call a particle an Oreo because <laughs> Oreos have something inside them, so it can't be fundamental. Oh boy, you could go in loops. Like maybe Oreos are then made out of Legos and Legos are made out of Oreos. Wait, are Oreos an acronym? I just wonder because I always see them capitalized. (laughs) You're right, yeah. Mm, What does Oreo stand for? Another secret of the universe uncovered here. Yeah, listeners out there, educate us. What does Oreo mean? But it is a wonderful universe. And, you know, as human beings, we sort of can't help as we look at it. We can't help but wonder about it and ask questions about it. You know, we see things that we don't understand or see things that are maybe seem unexplainable. And you have to ask, why is it the way that is? Or how does that work? Yeah, and we are surfing along on this incredible wave of scientific knowledge. People 100 years ago knew so much less about the universe than we do. And people in 100 years will know exponentially more about the universe than we do. So every year that goes by, we gain more and more insight into this crazy bonkers universe. And all you have to do is sit back and enjoy the wave. Or you can come join us and pitch in to create that knowledge. Yeah, there's a lot we know and a lot we don't know and people have questions and by the way i should give a shout out again to our book frequently asked questions about the universe which is out now and people can get it and We answer all kinds of amazing questions in it for you. That's right. And for those moments on our podcast when Jorge says, oh, that's tricky to do on a podcast. I wish I could scribble on a piece of paper. Well, the book is a bunch of pieces of paper. A lot of them have Jorge's hilarious scribbles on them. Because don't forget, he's not just a podcaster. He's also a cartoonist. Just a cartoonist. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, we answer all kinds of awesome questions in it. So please support the podcast. Get a book for yourself when you uh, read over the holidays or for a friend or maybe as a late gift to that special loved one you totally forgot about or if you're building an extension to your house and you need some building materials order a bunch of copies (laughs) yeah they stack pretty well right (laughs) they're rectangular they're sort of brick like 
they're made out of dense matter as well. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, people have questions and we get so many questions on the podcast here through social media that we couldn't fit them all in one book. And so we like to answer those questions here on the podcast live. That's right. We encourage you when you are thinking about the universe and wondering how something works to write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. I can usually answer people's emails in less than a day and give them a clear answer about their question. Sometimes the question is so good that I want to talk about it on the podcast when we ask listeners to send in audio of themselves asking their question. Yeah, so today on the program, we'll be tackling... Listener questions, number 22. 22? Have we actually recorded 22 of these listener question episodes? We have in our more than 350 episodes that we've done so far. We've done 22 listener question episodes, which means we've answered like 66 questions on the air. Wow. And the questions keep on coming, right? They come into your inbox every day. Absolutely. We get dozens of questions every single day and they're a joy to read because it shows me that people out there are thinking. They are using physics to try to understand the universe. They are taking the ideas we are giving them and trying to apply them elsewhere and saying, hey, how come this doesn't work or I don't get it. What happens when the ship turns around in the twin paradox? So if you're confused about something or you see something in physics you don't understand, please don't be shy. Write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. We love your emails. Do you ever get questions about Legos? <laughs> Which color should I use next? Or have you seen my four by one piece? <laughs> have you seen my Lego model of the fundamental particle of the universe? No, but I think we should have a contest. We should have listeners send in pictures of their most physics-y Lego creations. Ooh, interesting. So email those to us, do questions at danielandjorge.com, and we'll post our favorites online. And you can't just have like one little piece in the middle there and say it's like a model of the fundamental <laughs> particle of nature. That's cheating. That's right. Or just a black picture and say, hey, it's a black hole. <laughs> yeah, it's dark matter. <laughs> That's right. An empty picture. And then and just say it's dark matter Lego. That's right. And this episode is airing just after Christmas, so I hope that... That all of you folks out there have been lucky and gotten some nice pile of new Legos for Christmas and can make something physics out of it and send us a nice snapshot. Yeah, so we'll be answering questions from listeners here today. And we have some awesome questions about asteroids and dinosaurs and black holes, decaying stars. And, and that's all just one question or maybe two questions. And also aliens, of course. What's happening in Proxima Centauri? So these are all awesome questions. And we'll start with this first one from Spencer from Melbourne, who, by the way, is having a birthday right now. That's right. December 29th is Spencer's birthday. So happy birthday, Spencer. He's in Melbourne, Australia. But does that mean that if it's December 28th here, it's actually already December 29th in Australia? Yeah, but three years in the future. <laughs> Because those uh, Australians are ahead of their time. <laughs> That's right. Through the wormhole, we are also communicating with Spencer's 18th and 75th <laughs> birthday parties. Yeah, well, we should record his next like three birthdays here right now so he can just replay them. So uh, happy ninth birthday, Spencer. And happy 10th birthday, Spencer. And happy 11th birthday. That's right. And happy 75th birthday. I hope we're all still around. By then. <laughs> yeah. uh, I doubt it, though. Unless we move to Australia and they have that fancy technology. <laughs> That's right. Australia is going to deflect the asteroid, but only from Australia. They're going to send it our way instead. Yeah, but happy birthday, Spencer. And thank you for listening to the podcast. We hear you're a big fan. And we have your question here that's really awesome. And it's about asteroids and dinosaurs. Hi, Daniel and Jorge. My name is Spencer. I live in Australia and I'm eight years old. So I have this question for you. So um, what would happen if the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs missed Earth? 
and I really love your podcast, and I can't wait to hear your answer. Oh, so awesome. Thank you, Spencer. That's such a great question. I feel like that's the plot of a movie. The voice of a future scientist. I love it. Or a science fiction author. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think there's a job for you at Marvel. They have a whole show called What If? <laughs> Agents, somebody get out there and get Spencer on contract. Well, it's a great question. And, and his question is, what would happen if the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs had actually missed the Earth? That's a pretty big one, right? Like, would we still be around even? It's a wonderful idea to think about because it really shows you how our existence depends on a huge sequence of random events, things that might have gone slightly differently and could have had very, very different outcomes. It's really amazingly improbable that we are even here. Yeah, it's sort of a crazy coincidence that we're all here right now the way we are right now. Like any sort of a small event in the past could have changed the course of history or even the course of your life. Exactly. And you might imagine that, you know, things would have roughly gone the same way. But there are moments in evolution of life and in our cosmic history when very small changes would lead to very large differences in the outcome. And this is a great example because for that asteroid to hit the Earth, it had to be on exactly the right trajectory. A tiny little deviation earlier on, like a hundred or a thousand years earlier in its history, and it would have missed the Earth and the Earth could have had a totally different history. So like some little rock bouncing against that asteroid a thousand years before it hit totally determined the future of life on earth mm, yeah all right well let's get to answering spencer's question and uh, i guess first of all daniel uh, an asteroid killed the dinosaurs that's the prevailing theory these days we think that a piece of rock from the outer part of the asteroid belt something about the size of mm, mount everest hit the earth around 65 million years ago traveling around 30 kilometers per second so that's an incredible amount of energy to deliver to the surface of the earth 30 kilometers per second. That's uh, faster than the speed of sound, right? That's, that's super fast. It's super fast and it would have caused incredible shockwaves. And, you know, rocks are hitting the atmosphere all the time. Every time you see a shooting star, that's a rock hitting the atmosphere. But the atmosphere slows them down and there's friction. And that's where they heat up and they burn and they turn into flames. And a huge number of them never hit the ground because they melt, they vaporize before they hit the ground. But if you're big enough to survive that, only your outer edges vaporize and the core actually hits the surface of the earth. And this one was definitely plenty big to hit the surface and cause a huge amount of damage. Yeah, it came with a ton of energy. I mean, like much, much bigger than the Hiroshima bomb or any of those uh, nuclear bombs we have. Yeah, it has the energy equivalent of 10 billion Hiroshima bombs. So it was an enormous, devastating impact and delivered an incredible amount of energy to the atmosphere and also to the surface of the Earth itself. Yeah, and it hit somewhere uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula, right, which is in Mexico. Yeah, it hit in the Yucatan, which is really interesting and had a big role in its effect on life on Earth because the water there is fairly shallow. If it had hit a few minutes earlier or a few minutes later, like if it had gone deep into the Atlantic or deep into the Pacific, it would have had a very different effect on life on Earth. So it hit fairly shallow, which means it didn't throw up like a huge amount of water, just like a maybe a hundred meter high tsunami, which is pretty small for such a big impact. But it did throw up a lot of sulfur into the atmosphere because the rocks right there, it's a carbon layer with a lot of sulfur. So it threw up a huge amount of sulfur into the atmosphere, which caused a lot of problems for life on Earth. I guess maybe a, a basic question is like, how do we know these things? I know that you can see the crater there in the Yucatan Peninsula, but how do we know like that's the crater that the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs landed in, you know, like, how do we know that's the one? And how do we know, you know, when it hit and, and how big it was? 
These are great questions and it's been a while. It's been taken like decades to really put the story together. It's always going to be a little bit circumstantial, but you know, we know that there was a die off around 65 million years ago. When you look at the fossil record, 75% of all species went extinct around 65 million years ago. So clearly something happened. And then we also see evidence for this impact, which we can date to the same time using, you know, geological layers. We can see time pass as you dig down deeper into the earth. And we see this crater and it's not just like a big hole in the ground. It looks like a crazy impact. Like there are rocks that only form in certain circumstances, like incredible high energy events. This thing called shocked quartz, for example, only happens when there's a huge impact. And so there's a layer there that is evidence of an enormous impact right around the same time. Oh, interesting. When the asteroid hit the Earth, it actually kind of um, transformed some of the rock that was there or part of the rock that came with the asteroid and like, made new kinds of rock. Yeah, rocks that you only see under like devastating impacts. And so it's a pretty clear signature that there was a devastating impact right around the same time as a huge die off. We can time these things pretty well, but it's 65 million years in the past. And so, you know, the uncertainty on these things is like a few thousand years by now, which seems small compared to, you know, millions of years, but it's still pretty big. So we're pretty sure that these two things are aligned, but, you know, we never know for sure in science. Right. 65 million years is, is a long time. And I guess the other question is, how do we know that it passed by the Earth once before? Like, that's the part of the theory is that this asteroid actually sort of did a, a drive-by before it hit the Earth. Like, it was checking us out, maybe. Yeah, when we went to JPL to talk to the team there that watches asteroids constantly to make sure this is not about to happen to us, they told us that that's the theory, that this asteroid didn't just like come straight out of the asteroid belt and hit the Earth. You know, it does a bunch of orbits before it actually hits the Earth. And in one of their reconstructions, they think that it made a really near miss one time when it ran around the sun and then it looped around again and came back and hit the earth, which means that if you had looked up in the sky as a dinosaur, you might have seen it. And if you'd been like a dinosaur scientist, you might have had some like years warning, which means, you know, you could have done something. So this comes from, you know, it's a little bit speculative, but they have an idea for where it came from in the outer asteroid belt and how big it was and where it hit and its velocity. So they can sort of like backtrack its trajectory. And this is one of those possible scenarios. Yeah, I bet they did see it. And I bet the conversation went some, something like, rrr, rrr, <laughs> meaning like, I have these little hands in front of me. I can't do anything with them, said the T-Rex. Yeah, they didn't really have like dexterous fingers, which allowed them to develop technology and send emails to get stuff done. Because we all know that's how you get stuff done in this world is send an email. So that's <laughs> no, why they didn't make any the progress. <laughs> Anyways, so Spencer's question, back to Spencer's question. His question was, what if that asteroid had not hit the Earth? Like what if it had missed us? What would have happened to Earth, to the history of Earth, I guess, first of all? Would that rock, do you think, would still be flying around and would it sort of eventually hit us? Oh, yeah, that's a fun question. What if it hit us later on, right? Well, I think Spencer's question is like, what if it missed entirely? If that hadn't happened, what would be the future of Earth? But you can imagine all sorts of different scenarios where, you know, waits a few more years or a few more thousands of years and then hits us and uh, probably has similar impacts. It's really fun to think about. And I like to think about not just whether it hit the Earth, but like if it had hit the Earth in a different place. 
because when it hit in the Yucatan, it threw up all this sulfur into the atmosphere, which caused incredible dust and acid rain. There were like shock waves, uh, magnitude 12 earthquakes and volcanoes triggered. And it would have been different if it had hit the Pacific, for example, because that would have absorbed a lot more energy and you would have gotten more tsunamis and fewer earthquakes, for example. You would have gotten like a five kilometer high tsunami, which would have been pretty amazing. Yeah, like a five kilometer tall wave coming at you that would have probably taking on most uh, vegetation and animals in, in most coasts around the world. Yeah, so people speculate that maybe larger dinosaurs would have survived if it had hit in the Pacific or in the Atlantic, but because it hit in the Yucatan and threw up all this like burning ejecta into the sky that started wildfires and everything all over the earth, that it spelled immediate doom for those guys. But let's talk about what would have happened if it had missed entirely. And this is a really active area of discussion among evolutionary biologists because some of them think that the dinosaurs were sort of already on their way out, that the climate was cooling and the dinosaurs were not well adapted. And so some scientists argue that at the end of the Cretaceous, the dinosaurs had been declining already for 40 million years and that mammals were on the ascendance. Interesting. So like maybe dinosaurs were about to be extinct anyways, or at least the large ones, right? Is that what you mean by dinosaurs or do you mean like all dinosaurs? No, I mean just the large ones because, you know, dinosaurs technically not extinct. Birds are descendants of dinosaurs. So all the birds out there are dinosaurs. So we're really just talking about the large non-avian dinosaurs. Right, right. The cool ones, the big ones <laughs> with big teeth and horns. This is sort of like, you know, your TV show quits before it gets canceled, you know, by the network or something. So it might be that the dinosaurs were sort of on their way out, that the T-Rexes and the Brontosauruses and all those guys were not going to last until present day. Right. But is there something about dinosaurs that wouldn't have survived the change in climate? Like, is it just not sustainable to be that big? Is that what you mean? I think it's more a question of competition. You know, are the dinosaurs or were the mammals better adapted to the climate as it was cooling? And there's one scientist, Mike Benton, a paleontologist at Bristol University, who argues that there's evidence that mammals were really rapidly diversifying just before this happened. And so they were sort of poised to fill a lot more niches than the dinosaurs. So it's really all about competition. But most evolutionary biologists, I think, disagree and argue that dinosaurs are very, very adaptable and that no matter what would have happened to the climate, they would have found a way to survive. I mean, one piece of evidence for that is that there are still twice as many species of birds as there are mammals today. So dinosaurs, including birds and their ancestors, were very, very adaptable. And then those survived the asteroid, right? Like something about that asteroid killed those big dinosaurs was maybe like a sped up version of what was going to happen anyways over millions of years. It could be. But if it happened more slowly, then those bigger dinosaurs could have potentially survived, though they would be changed. So if the asteroid hadn't hit the Earth and T-Rexes and all those guys had survived, we wouldn't see T-Rexes walking around today looking the way the fossil reconstruction does, the same way there's lots of animals from the past that we don't see walking around today because they're extinct or because they have adapted. You know, horses don't look anything like they used to, for example. Right, yeah. Maybe like there would be small T-Rexes running around or small, you know, pterodactyls flying around, like small versions of them. Yeah. And so people have gone back and looked at like the history of Earth's climate and thought about how that might have affected the dinosaurs if the asteroid hadn't hit. So 55 million years ago, for example, things got really, really hot. It got eight degrees Celsius hotter than it was today. And there were rainforests spanning much of the planet. So dinosaurs would have had to adapt to that. And then 35 million years ago, things got colder and drier. And instead of rainforests, you had grasslands covering most of the earth. 
And that's why we have things like elk and deer and all sorts of fast four-footed mammals evolved. So, you know, dinosaurs would have had to adapt it to all of those. And we might have had very different, very interesting new kinds of dinosaurs evolve in response to these climate changes. Mm, interesting. So they would have stuck around and they would have adapted and evolved. And I think it sort of inevitably maybe had a showdown with mammals, right? Like that's sort of like maybe more of a direct competition with mammals. Maybe a, a big dinosaur mammal war. <laughs> now you're writing your screenplay. I can hear it. <laughs> yeah. Something that's really interesting that I didn't realize is that dinosaurs weren't around to see flowers. Like flowering plants evolved after dinosaurs. And flowering plants are easier to survive on because there's like a dense packet of nutrition there, either in the fruits or in the seeds or whatever. So dinosaurs might have evolved in response to that. They could have been smaller, for example. They wouldn't have to be so big. And that's one reason that our ancestors survived. You know, they were like swinging in the trees, eating fruits. And so it's interesting to wonder, like, would a dinosaur have evolved to fill that niche? You know, like the dinosaur version of a monkey. What would that have looked like? Would there have been competition with, you know, our ancestors? It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about a little bit about what that might mean for humans and let's answer other questions from listeners. But first, let's take a quick break. You know that feeling after you've done a deep spring clean of your house when you realize, wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like how you feel when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, while Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording all this? So it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Personally, I've used Mint Mobile, and the calls are always so crisp and so clear. All of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So it's time to ditch your overpriced wireless and go with Mint Mobile's limited time deal for three months, a premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash universe. That's mintmobile.com slash universe. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Slower speeds above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities, but it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love and the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico. Because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. All right, we are answering listener questions. And our first one was about uh, dinosaurs and what would have happened if the asteroid that killed them had actually missed the Earth. And we talked about how they would have adapted maybe and lived with mammals. But do you think, Daniel, that that would have meant no humans? Or do you think humans might have still evolved with dinosaurs? It's really hard to say because there are no evidence of dinosaurs living in the evolutionary niche that humans take you know, or that our ancestors took. The sort of like living in trees, eating fruits, swinging around. There really aren't any dinosaurs. But then again, they weren't around when fruits and flowering plants evolved. So who knows how they would have responded or if they would have figured that out. Wait, are you saying the humans evolved intelligence because they could eat bananas? <laughs> despite eating bananas, oh, is what despite. I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a competing theory. I have my own theory about human evolution here. But yeah, it takes like a lot of dexterity to climb trees and to swing around them. And that gives you dexterous fingers, which allows you to manipulate your environment and develop tools and do all sorts of crazy things. Dot, 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 intelligence, right? So I'm not saying bananas are responsible for physics. Bananas are tricky to peel. I mean, not everyone can peel them easily. Yeah, but do all animals actually peel them or do they just chomp down and eat the skin also? <laughs> well, only, only the intelligent ones peel them, <laughs> which is what I'm saying. <laughs> I see. That's the intelligence test right there. <laughs> but I guess another cool scenario is that dinosaurs could have evolved intelligence and maybe they would have been like the primary species on Earth and developed spaceships and internet and phones. It's one of those deep questions. What forms can intelligence take and what makes it evolve? Something we see about life on Earth is that life on Earth started 
fairly shortly after it was possible. Like life has been around a long, long time. Once the earth cooled and the chemistry was around, it didn't take that long for life to kick off, but it did take billions of years for intelligence to evolve, which might suggest that it's rare or difficult or unlikely. But you know, we're extrapolating from one example. So we don't know if another species might have developed intelligence or if it would have taken another billion years for dinosaurs to become intelligent, or you know, maybe something else would have happened. Another asteroid would have come and killed everybody. And then the slugs would have become intelligent. Who knows? Mm, and everything would have been a lot slower. That sounds great, actually. I bet slugs don't send too many emails. <laughs> I bet they just sit in the couch all day and do <laughs> physics. All right. Well, thank you, Spencer, for that awesome question, that big what if question. And again, happy birthday. So we'll get to our next question here. And this one is from Corin, who is 11 years old. Hi, Daniel and Jorge. My name is Julian. Love the show. Thank you so much for making it. Um, my son, Corin, recently asked me a question that I did not know how to answer. So I was really hoping you could help. How do we know that black holes come from decaying stars? Awesome question. Thank you, Corin and Dad. That's so great that you guys uh, listen to the podcast together. That is wonderful. I really enjoy hearing people out there supporting the next generation of curious scientists. So thank you, all you parents and teachers, of course, for encouraging thinkers of the next generation. Yeah. So this one is a pretty tricky question and it's a little bit technical, but Corin wants to know, how do we know that black holes come from decaying stars? Like, you know, we black holes are so mysterious. We barely have a picture of them. They were mostly theoretical for a long time. Like, how do we know their origin and how do we know where they come from? It's a great question. And it's important to think about what we do know and how we've drawn these conclusions, because sometimes we're led astray. Sometimes we don't actually have evidence for something. We assume it's true. Then we discover, oh, that was a big mistake. It turns out that the universe works in a totally different way. So it's a really good idea to go back and examine what we do know and how we know it. And it's especially tricky to understand how things in the universe turn into other things because it usually takes a long time. It might take a million years or a billion years for a star to burn out. So how do you learn about how this thing happens when you don't have a billion years to watch something, right? You can't just watch a star for a billion years until it turns into a black hole. It's pretty tricky to figure this stuff out. That would be a long PhD. I mean, that would take you <laughs> a billion years just to get that degree. But we do have another tool, which is that we can look out into the universe and we can look further and further out, which means we're looking further and further back in time. Because remember, light travels at a finite, though dizzyingly fast speed. And that means that as we look further out into the universe, we're looking further back in time. So we can sort of like rewind and fast forward movies of the universe to see what happened. You can never look at one object at different slices in time, but you can look at different populations and you can see how things on average evolve. Right. It's like you can see a whole group of people or a little town of people and you can see, oh, there are babies and then there are also little slightly bigger humans and then slightly bigger humans. And then there's humans who get wrinkles and, and seem to get old. And, uh, and so you sort of piece it together and you say, OK, I think these humans go from babies to old people. Exactly. And we can't follow one individual person in that analogy through their whole life. But we can sort of piece that story together by seeing different slices from sort of different villages. 
And that story tells us that there is this evolution of stars, that stars are formed, we see that happen, that they burn for a long time, that they expand, and that they collapse and sometimes make supernova. And all those things we see, again, not from an individual star, but we can see different stars at various points in their evolution. And sometimes we look at what happens after a supernova and we see this incredible cloud of stuff, this remnants of the supernova blowing out most of its contents. But at the heart, you can see something dark and something massive right there where the star used to be. Right. And, and I think we've actually seen sort of seen supernovas, right? Like throughout our history, we've sort of seen a few of them and also at least see them as just as after they happen. Yes, we can see supernova happen. It's incredible because they're very short lived, right? They burn like brighter than the entire galaxy that they're in. And sometimes they last a few days, sometimes a few weeks, but they are these very brief moments in time. Then of course, we can't wait around for the black hole to form or to show us its evidence, but we can look somewhere else in the universe, somewhere where we think a supernova happened recently. And we can tell a supernova happened because we see, for example, these clouds of gas and dust shooting out from the center at very high speeds, which is the kind of thing that only happens in a supernova. So we see, oh, here's a supernova that happened a thousand years ago or a million years ago. And we can look at the heart of that and ask, is there a black hole right there at the heart of this cloud that came from a dying star? Yeah. And sometimes you can see it, right? I mean, you don't see it directly. You don't see the black hole like a picture of it, but you see it kind of tugging on the things around it, but without any sort of bright light coming from it. Exactly. And we did actually once recently see a black hole that had just been born. There's this supernova called AT2018COW, which is known to astronomers as the cow. Is that like the goat, but a <laughs> different accomplishment level? That's right. There's a different acronym there for cow. And this was very dark at the center and then suddenly it became very, very bright. So this is like a supernova remnant and at the heart of it was dark and then all of a sudden it turned on and was very, very bright. And that's actually counterintuitively evidence for a black hole, because what happens in a black hole is that while it itself doesn't give off light, the gas and the dust swirling around it in the accretion disk get very, very hot and they can emit a lot of radiation, very, very bright sources of X-rays, for example. And so what they saw, they think, is this black hole sort of turning on and, and giving off these beams of x-rays from its accretion disk. So that's a pretty good evidence of seeing a black hole form after the death of a star. Wow. So you can actually, we've actually seen this baby black hole and saw that it came from a star that imploded. Yeah. And it makes sense because if you keep looking around long enough, you should capture a star at basically every stage of its life cycle. And so if you look at enough stars, you'll see these things forming, you'll see black holes forming, you'll see supernovas at all different stages. It's really pretty fun. And on top of that experimental evidence, you know, seeing all these things at different stages, we also have a model. We have a theory for how stars form and we can do this in simulation. We say we know what the laws of physics are. We think we understand the starting point for stars. What should happen according to the laws of physics? And when you do those calculations, you get a supernova and then you get a collapse and you get a black hole. And the black holes that are formed are about the size of black holes that we see out there in the universe. So the story sort of all hangs together. There's, you know, little bits of it that are circumstantial. You can't actually see the whole life cycle of a star. But we try to tell a complete scientific story and probe it from lots of different angles and it mostly hangs together. Yeah, you mean like you, we can sort of think about how a star works and predict what's going to happen and some, sometimes a black hole will form 
and you can also sort of see these uh, evidence of them out there. And so it matches what you predict and it also matches what you see right now. Yeah, and we can also see when a black hole doesn't form because if there's not enough mass to make a black hole, then instead it will make a neutron star, this other very, very dense object, but not quite a black hole. It's more of a gray hole. <laughs> yeah, and we see those also, and that helps us validate, like, in general, our understanding of stars and how they die and how they collapse. So we can predict not just when it makes a black hole, but when it fails to make a black hole. And our models also describe that pretty well. All right. Well, I think that answers the question. We can predict the, that they come from decaying and collapsing stars. And you, you can also see them out there that have the black holes that have come from collapsing stars and some that came a long time ago from decaying stars. All right, let's get into our last question. But first, we'll do the side question here, Daniel. And this one is sort of about your emotional state. Did this one come from a reader or your, uh, your parents? This one came from a listener. Here it is. Hey, guys, it's Daniel from the UK here. I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and I thought, who better to ask it to than you guys? I mean, you've done a lot of podcasts. You've thought about the universe on a vast scale, all the various questions that no one knows the answers to. And I'm just thinking, do you ever get a bit sad and depressed that you probably won't be alive long enough to find out some of these big answers? You know? Are there aliens? What are they like? What's dark matter? What's the meaning of life? You know, what's inside a black hole? Does the universe ever end? I don't know. I'm excited for the future and to see what we discover. But also occasionally, you know, during the existential crisis, I'll be a bit bummed out about the fact <laughs> I probably won't be alive to find out a lot of these things. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Great question. Thank you. And yeah, Daniel, it's sort of an interesting question. I guess, are they concerned about you, do you think? Or are they worried <laughs> that you're leading an unhappy life? I think they're just sort of capturing the feeling of living in primitive times. You know, we know that we know so little about the universe and we hope that our great grandchildren and their great grandchildren will know more. And that's exciting, but it's also sort of frustrating because we know the information is out there. We know humans eventually will probably figure this stuff out. Somebody will know the answers to these questions that keep us up at night. And yet we probably will not or we may not, depending on how smart the next generation is. And that is sort of frustrating, but exciting. Well, the question is sort of like, are you sad that you in your lifetime because you've devoted your life to answering some of these big questions like are you a little bit sad that you may not know the answers by the end of your life like you may you may never know the answers well i'm planning to invest in cryogenics so that a year before i die i can just freeze my body and then thaw it every hundred years or so instead of get an update <laughs> on the physics <laughs> but if you did right before you die you would just be dying <laughs> 50 years into the future that's right i'll spend my last year sort of like surfing through the future learning about what happens in physics you want to spend the last year of your life in school is what you're saying. <laughs> I've spent all of my life in school so far. I'm in like 500th <laughs> grade right now. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you haven't had enough. Sounds like a, a premise for a show called Futurama. <laughs> Exactly. So it's really fun. But, you know, even if we get the answers to those questions, then our descendants who know those things about the universe, they're going to have new questions because we know the answers to questions that people puzzled over 500 years ago. We know those things definitively, but we're still tortured with new questions about the universe. So it's not like there's ever going to be a moment where we're like, okay, yeah, we got it. We have it figured out. Because we are curious, because we wonder, and because we explore, there are always going to be more things to wonder about. And I also kind of get the sense that what's fun for you, for scientists, for all of us who sort of think about these things, is sort of the asking of the question, you know? It's like it's the journey, not the destination. 
Like it's fun just to be part of this moment in time where we're asking these questions and learning more about it. And it's almost like if you actually found out the answer, it would be not as fun anymore. <laughs> Depends on what the answer is. But yeah, often the joy is in asking the questions because we certainly ask a lot more questions than we get answers. So the sign that you're a scientist, it might be that you like asking questions and puzzling over them, not necessarily just getting the answers. All right. Well, we'll get to our last question. And it's, uh, it's an interesting one about maybe sending your in-laws to another planet. So we'll get into that. But first, let's take another quick break. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities. But it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love in the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. 
had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. All right, we're answering listener questions today here on the podcast. And we've gotten some awesome questions. And we talked about some awesome answers here about dinosaurs, asteroids, and black holes and collapsing stars. And our last question comes from Nick. Hello, Daniel and Jorge and all the guests, hosts. I really appreciate the podcast. My question today is, if we could put someone on a planet near another star, for example, Proxima Centauri, and have them try to detect the civilization on Earth with current Earth technology, would they be able to? Thank you very much. Mm, asking for a friend, I guess. <laughs> if you could banish someone to another planet, like at Pro- Proxima Centauri, uh, Nick wants to know, could they find us with current Earth technology? Like, do you think he's asking if they'd be out there forever or, or lost? Or is there a sort of an easy way to get back to Earth? <laughs> I don't think he's thinking at all about sending one of his friends or your in-laws to Proxima Centauri. I think he's wondering about if there are aliens on Proxima Centauri, would they have discovered that we exist? If they had sort of like Earth-like technology. Oh, I see, I see. All right, yeah, so like if there is already somebody there, maybe your future in-laws, you never know, right? (laughs) I mean, life takes interesting turns sometimes. They could be future in-laws. How would they find us, I guess? Yeah, it's a fun question because we don't know where the aliens might be. And so it's worth asking, should we have heard from them or should they have discovered us? So it's an important sort of thought experiment. If there were aliens there, shouldn't we have heard from them? Because, you know, they're only four light years away, which means if they knew that we are here, it wouldn't take very long for them to send us a message back, right? It's actually the kind of conversation we might be able to have. Much better than discovering aliens across the galaxy where it takes 50,000 years to send a message. These are basically our neighbors. And so it's important to wonder whether or not they would even know that we are here. Mm, I see. Well, let's maybe break it down a little bit. What is Proxima Centauri? Is it a it's a nearby star or a nearby planet? It's a nearby star. It's a red dwarf, and it's got two planets that we've discovered around it. And it's only three point seven light years away. It's the closest star to our sun. So, if there's any place we'd like to discover friendly aliens, then it's Proxima Centauri because it's very close by. And then there are other stars almost as close by, but this one edges out the other ones and is the closest. Mm, I see. And these planets are sort of habitable, you think? All right, yes. So there are two planets out there, Proxima Centauri B and Proxima Centauri C. One of them, Proxima B, is orbiting within Proxima's habitable zone, meaning that like the temperatures are right for liquid water to exist on its surface. But, you know, Proxima Centauri is actually a flare star. It gets like brighter and darker. And so it's not really clear whether any aliens could survive there. Interesting. And so it's it's the closest basically outpost or like non-empty space that is the closest to us in our galaxy, right? That's right. Right. Well, the question is, if they have, if there are aliens, if you put a scientist there with Earth technology, or if there are aliens there living there, could they find us? Would they know we're here? 
And 3.7 light years away is not that far, right? Like if I shine a flashlight in their direction right now, tonight, it would get there in four years. It would get there in four years. And some of those photons from your flashlight would actually hit Proxima B. And so that's pretty exciting because your flashlight sends out light in a cone and that cone expands. So when you get really, really far out, that cone is really, really wide. So your flashlight would cover like the entire solar system out there in Proxima B. Every point in that solar system could potentially see your flashlight. But of course, it wouldn't be very bright anymore because it would have spread out so much. Right. Well, what you could use maybe a laser. You could use a laser. And so that's exactly the issue is that we could send signals to Proxima Centauri using Earth technology and they could discover it if it was sent intentionally. Right. So if we on purpose sent a message to Proxima Centauri that was focused, saying like, we want to beam a whole bunch of light right at this one place, then yes, we could send a message that they could discover. But if we're just sort of like sending signals out into space generally, then it'd be much harder to discover it because those signals would die off very, very rapidly. You mean the way we're like broadcasting TV signals and radio signals out there and into the, the atmosphere and out into space, like that's not focused, right? Like that's just going everywhere. And so that would get diluted pretty quickly. Exactly. And if they have technology on Proxima Centauri, like we do, you know, a dish like Arecibo or something, they can only see those kinds of signals if you were within about a light year of the source. So to detect signals from Earth using a dish like Arecibo, you'd have to be within about a light year of Earth. So if you had a dish like that on Proxima Centauri, we'd have to send signals that were like 16 times stronger in order for an Arecibo on Proxima Centauri to pick them up. Interesting. Or I guess maybe the hope that they have a bigger receiving dish, right? Yeah, maybe they have a 16 times bigger dish, then they could see us. But next question was sort of like with current Earth technology. And so if we sent a directed message there, then they could definitely pick it up. If we have no idea that they're there and we're not sending them any messages, which sort of like blathering out into the universe, then it's unlikely with current Earth technology, they would even know that we are here. Oh, I see. So they can't eavesdrop on us. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> they can't eavesdrop of our Netflix subscription. <laughs> That's right. And the latency from there is terrible. <laughs> yeah, they're barely just watching uh, season one of Stranger Things. <laughs> That's right. Buffering, buffering, buffering. For four years. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's sort of talking to them, but could they see us? Like we can see, we can sort of see them, right? We can see these planets out there and you can actually sort of almost take pictures of it, right? It's not just being detected by the gravity there. Could they see us and could they sort of take a picture of us? Almost. Like these are the closest planets. And so if we use Earth-like technology, we can tell that those planets are there. And now we can make some measurements of what's in the atmosphere of those planets. Like we don't yet have telescopes that are powerful enough to directly take pictures of them, though we will in about 10 or 15 years. But currently what we can do is like see how the light changes as it passes through the atmosphere of those planets and use that to get estimates for what's in the atmosphere. And like, is there methane? Is there oxygen? Are there signs of life in that atmosphere? What's the weather like on those planets? Interesting. Yeah, they could tell that we are polluting our atmosphere and not doing a great <laughs> job. And maybe they decide not to come visit us. Yeah, but it's not easy to just look at the atmosphere and conclude that life exists. People used to think, well, all you need to do is see oxygen because oxygen is evidence of life. But now we have lots of ideas for how you could make a lot of oxygen on the surface of a planet without life. And we recently discovered, for example, phosphine on Venus, or people thought we did. That was thought to be like clear evidence of life. But now it turns out that that wasn't such a strong discovery. So it's a really vibrant and fast moving field of study right now. What can you learn about potential life on the surface just from understanding the atmosphere? 
But in about 10 or 15 years, some of these other devices like the 30 meter telescope or the giant Magellan telescope will turn on and those will give us much better resolving power and they might be able to take direct pictures and give us a sense for what's going on on those planets. Right. Yeah, that would be cool. I wonder if we could also send a probe, right? Like four light years away, you know, maybe in 50 years we could send something there that it reaches there, right? Yeah, it's possible. It would take a long time because a probe like that would have to accelerate to a good fraction of the speed of light to get there in 50 years. But it would be pretty awesome. The most distant probe we have ever sent only recently left the solar system. So it takes a long time, though our technology has improved a little bit. Yeah, just make them faster, I guess. So it, this is kind of it's us sort of talking and seeing each other, but it turns out that maybe we've actually heard from Proxima Centaurians, right? There's a story of a famous signal that came from there recently. Yeah, it said, help, we're Jorge's in-laws and he trapped us here on Proxima Centauri. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's more like, hey, we want to meet this Jorge. <laughs> we have some good prospects for him here. This was a fun story, though it was a brief excitement. Last year, they collected some signals at the Parkes Telescope in Australia. And as part of the Breakthrough Listen project, which is looking for evidence of life in the universe by listening for potential signals, they were scanning lots of frequencies and looking for potential technological signals. And people got really excited for a few weeks that maybe we had heard something. It's a really difficult problem to know how to scan radio signals for signs of life because we don't know what that life would be like. We don't know whether it'd be a technological civilization. We don't even know if they would use radio, how they would structure a message. It's a hard thing to do, but there are some basic things to look for if you want a message that comes not from Earth. And one of those, for example, is to see that there are shifting frequencies. You know, if you send a message from something that's in motion that has a velocity, then the waves from that object get shifted by the Doppler shift. And because like if it's coming from Proxima Centauri, that planet is going around its star. And so it's moving away from us and then towards us and away from us and then towards us. So a message from there should have that kind of Doppler shift as that planet goes around the star or maybe even a different kind of Doppler shift as the planet is spinning if the message actually comes from the surface. So they looked through all the information they get from the telescope and they actually found one that seemed to have the right Doppler shift. Interesting, I see. Because you want to make sure that it's not a signal that's coming from the star, right? Which is shining brightly. If you see something that looks like it's coming from something that's moving around the star, then you're like, hey, that came from the planet. And planets don't usually have bright sources, so it might be technology from these aliens. That's right. And then the second thing they do is they make sure that it really is coming from that direction. So they take the telescope and they point it in another direction, sort of like off of the target, and they hope that the signal disappears. And then they turn it back towards the target and they hope that the signal reappears. And so this one also survived that test. So it had the right Doppler shift and it seemed to be coming from that direction. You know, it only appeared when we were pointing towards Proxima Centauri. So people got kind of excited and they start digging into the details. Like, what is this message? Is there information in it? Can we decode it? There was a moment we thought maybe we had heard a signal from the aliens and it must be really exciting, but also difficult to work in this field where every day could be the day that you like change the history of humanity by hearing from aliens or not. <laughs> you know, it must be hard to maintain your excitement every time. It's either a big discovery or a big disappointment. But, uh, you know, that's the, everyone's is at work, right? That's every true. day you go to work, it could be the day <laughs> you come up with a, the brilliant idea that changes the world. It could be. And so what they found when they dug deeper into the signal is they actually discovered a bunch of other signals in their data, which looked almost exactly the same. 
and were clearly not coming from Proxima Centauri because they picked up these other signals and pointing in other directions. So what they discovered is that it's some weird kind of interference. I think it's still not totally understood, but it might be some weird kind of connection between some other kind of signal. Maybe it's the aliens here on Earth that are giving us that <laughs> signal, not the ones in Proxima Centauri. But for a moment, we thought maybe we had heard something from intelligent and technological civilizations on our neighboring star. That would have been awesome. Yeah, and I guess my question is, is Proxima Centauri, is everyone there a centaur? Like, that would be pretty cool. A whole planet of half <laughs> horse people. It's Proxima Centauri, so they're centaur adjacent. Oh, I see. They're approximately <laughs> centaur. I there you see. go. They're like sixty percent exactly. horse, forty percent person. Not the perfect balance. Yeah, you got to go to like asymptotic Centauri to get to you know almost get fully centaurs. That's right, or OG Centauri for the for the true stuff. Maxima Centauri. That's where you got to go. Ultimate Centauri. There you go. Best Centauri. All right. Well, I think that answers Nick's question. And the answer is, could someone in, in Proxima Centauri find us? And the answer is yes. But you need to be pretty focused on listening for us. And you need to be pretty focused on sending a signal here. Like it, it can't just sort of happen by accident, at least with current Earth technology. That's right. And with technology that we'll have in a dozen or so years, we might be able to see the surface of those planets and see what's going on and learn something about the surface of another planet. Would you go there, Daniel? Would you pack up and, you know, right before you die, I guess, <laughs> so that you wouldn't have to waste your time here? Would you go there? No, I really don't like travel. I don't even really like being on an airplane. So spaceships, no thank you. But you'd be asleep. And you'd be almost dead anyway. <laughs> I would say why not, right? Mm, I guess it depends on the snacks. Mm, I see. Did you eat while you were sleeping? And they stuff up your nose while you're taking your nap and <laughs> the peanuts? They feed me bananas without even peeling them. Oh, boy. <laughs> but let's move on here and thank everyone for sending their questions. We love answering these questions. We love tapping into your curiosity and getting us to, to think about these crazy scenarios and, and wonderful mysteries about the universe. That's right. So please continue to send us your wonderings and your questions and your puzzles to questions at danielandjorge.com. We can't get enough. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits... LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.